We're going to start off by reading Mark chapter 1, um, verse 14 and 15. It's where we left off last week as we're going verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. Verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested, speaking about John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I need us to understand something that's going to be the foundation for the rest of our time going through the gospel of Mark and really should help us understand the why behind Jesus coming and what his message truly was. You see, Jesus was preaching and proclaiming his good news. And the good news that Jesus was proclaiming was that the time had come for the restoration of all things back to God since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. The relationship with God was forfeit in the Garden of Eden by willful disobedience and sin that ultimately causes death. And not just talking about death here in this life where we die because we get older, we get sick or an accident happens or something like that. We're talking about the type of death that means eternal separation from God. That was the result of sin and disobedience, not just a fleshly death, but an eternal separation from God. And not only did it cause that, but sin entering the world also affected the perfection of creation because authority that was given to man in the Garden of Eden was now handed over to Satan because man was entrusted with this and then he decided that he wanted to trust in what the serpent's word said when he told them that you can basically decide for yourself. The knowledge of good and evil is something that you can decide on your own and you can basically make up your own rules and live according to your own will and be your own God. And so in making that type of decision, it's impacted and affected everything in creation. And Jesus preached a message that signaled the beginning of all things being restored from that point and from that sin and everything that had been affected by sin. This was the message that he was preaching when he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he was telling people, repent and believe. You see, Jesus paid it all and he began the process of the restoration of all things and you and I can experience some of what Christ has redeemed now and other parts we're going to experience later because you and I are in an interesting point in time in history. We're in this point in time in history where we experience the realities of what Christ has done now in the fact that we are forgiven now, present tense. We experience the reality of being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb right now, present tense. We are forgiven. We are free through faith in what Christ has done. And we know that we have heaven as our home if we truly trust in Jesus Christ as our hope, as our Lord, as our Savior. And that he has satisfied that payment that you and I owed by giving of his uh, life on the cross for you and for me. And when we believe and trust in that, we confess with our mouths and we live our lives according to that faith and that promise and have our hope set on him, then we have hope for things beyond our life. But it still means that things in this life are going to be difficult. Things in this life are still going to be challenging. 
We're going to go through ups and downs. We're going to go through times of suffering, times of difficulty. And sometimes God intervenes for his glory and helps us through those things and those situations change. And sometimes we go through difficulty and God still uses them for his glory, but it doesn't always get alleviated or remedied or fixed the way that we want it to because none of us want to go through anything tough, right? I mean, none of us are, are signing up for anything difficult, like sign me up for the most difficult pathway possible. But sometimes we do go through difficult things and we get under the impression that if we follow God and if we trust in Jesus, that all of our problems are just going to disappear and God's going to wave a magic wand and we're not going to have any problems ever again. And, and then if we do have problems, then we chalk it up to, well, maybe I just need to learn how to be a better Christian or maybe I need to behave better or maybe I need to know more scriptures or maybe I need to pray more or maybe I need to give more or maybe I need to serve more. And then all of a sudden we're doing this karma type system where we're trying to somehow get God in our debt. So if we can just do enough of the right things and all of a sudden all of our problems will disappear and everything will just be great and hunky-dory in our lives. And, and I'm sorry to tell you that that's not how it works. And that's not why Jesus came. When he was talking about restoring all things, some of those things we experience now, but Jesus has already paid the price for it, but yet we haven't experienced some of those things yet either. And so we're caught in an interesting time in history where we are presently redeemed by the blood of the lamb, but at the same time, there are things that we still see that we have not experienced. Go over to Romans chapter 8, and let's look at how the Apostle Paul explained this. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul gives this tension of the understanding of kind of where humanity is now that Christ has died on the cross, paid the price for sin, and he's risen victoriously over death, thus defeating even the enemy of death, which was our ultimate enemy. Now that has been defeated, and Jesus has shown his authority and victory over all these things, but yet we're still dealing with trials and challenges. And people back then had those same questions that we have now. You know, we'll ask questions like, why am I experiencing all of these things if God is so good? Why am I experiencing all the challenges? Why do bad things happen, right? Why, 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 does this, why is this allowed and that allowed? All those questions that people continually ask, they were asking back then too. And so Paul helps us to understand what Christ has done and what he's paid for and where we're at in the picture. And this is very true of where we're at today in Romans chapter 8. And verse 18, this is what Paul says. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So first he wants us to know that whatever you're suffering, whatever's tough, the glory that's gonna be revealed, man, it's not even worth comparing. Like it's so far beyond that. By the time that you can look in the rearview mirror, you're gonna be like, Psh, that was nothing because you can't even compare. It's not like you're gonna come out of this thing going, oh, oh, oh my goodness, you know? It's like, no, it's gonna be like, oh wow, this is so much greater and all of that that I was so concerned about. Man, that was nothing. It's, it's not even worth comparing, Paul says. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So Paul likens creation as if all of creation were kind of like one being and he kind of humanizes the idea of creation having like thoughts and emotions, which is an interesting concept to say that all of creation is longing for something. 
Creation is longing and is eager for something to happen, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what Paul's saying here is that this idea of creation longing and being eager for something is that creation is somehow witnessing what God has already done and how he's already paid the price and how humanity's experiencing it already. Humanity's living more in the reality of the already because of what Christ has done that we now have access to God through Jesus and we've been restored, we've been adopted, we've been forgiven, we've been set free and creation's like going collectively, when's it my turn? Because creation is still dealing with the effects of sin. Creation is still under that, that idea and, 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 and that sin and that curse, which is why we see all the things still happening in this world that still happen, which is why we still see all of the death and destruction and all the things that creation's going, I know that I have a promise to be completely restored, that Jesus, when he said he's gonna restore all things, he meant all things, not halfway, not partway, he means all things. And creation is kind of witnessing the revealing of the sons of God, seeing they've been forgiven, they've been brought into right standing with God, and creation is longing for that and is eager to see its redemption as well, because Jesus paid to restore and redeem all things. But yet Paul's saying there's this idea where we're still here, but it's not all been completely experienced, but it's all already been paid for and it's in motion. So we're in between the already and the not yet. And Paul says it like this. He said that it's not even like it was creation's fault. It was subjected to this futility, not willingly. In other words, it was somebody else's fault. Have you ever experienced the pain of something that someone else did and it wasn't your fault and you didn't have anything to do with it? It's called elected officials, right? Um, they make decisions that impact our lives and when they impact our lives negatively, we go, well, I didn't vote for that person, but it's still what they do affects you, right? And we've been in situations maybe with a brother or a sister, maybe growing up where you got in trouble for something that they did and you didn't have any part of it. And you're trying to convince your mom and dad you didn't have any part of it, but you still got in trouble anyways, but they did it. It's kind of like that with creation. Creation saying, what if we didn't even do anything? It's not like we ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was mankind, Adam and Eve did that. So creation was subjected to this futility, Paul says, not willingly, but it's actually because of the sin of someone else that all these things that are happening and are still happening is because of the effects of sin. And here we see creation, again, kind of being, 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 being in, this, in this kind of hyperbole, being humanized, and, and, and Paul's trying to help us to understand that creation longs to also experience what has already been bought and paid for by Jesus. And it says, verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
So Paul's even saying, even though humanity has experienced redemption, even though humanity has experienced this forgiveness, our bodies are still deteriorating. Oh, me or amen, I don't know what to say there, right? We still experience pain in our physical body. So this body has not fully been redeemed yet. And that's why it was so important for Jesus to rise from the dead bodily. And that's why the resurrection is so important in the early church was known for believing in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And that was a key doctrine that they believed in that set them apart from so many other groups. And Paul would regularly talk about this belief of the bodily resurrection of the dead. Because when Jesus died and then when he, was ro when he rose again, he rose in bodily form, the grave is empty, victorious over death, even in our physical bodies, thus setting for us the hope that we too one day will rise again with him to be with him and to be completely restored into the way God wants us to as we've been adopted. This is the faith that we have. This is the promise that we have that this whole thing's gonna be redeemed. It's not like Jesus paid for partial redemption. Jesus' sacrifice paid for total redemption, even in our physical body. So as you look at yourself in the mirror, whoo, you just ain't redeemed yet. <laughs> You've already been purchased, but you're still living here, and you have a hope and you have a promise, but you haven't experienced that bodily redemption fully yet because we still get sick. We still die, we still experience all the pains in our bodies and as we age and all those things. But guess what? The hope is, and the faith is, is because Jesus rose from the dead, we too are going to join him in resurrection to where that is not gonna be the case anymore, where there'll be no suffering, amen? amen? Amen, where we won't grow old, where we won't have aches and pains, amen, right? Where all this stuff is gonna be over because Jesus bought and paid for it. Jesus bought and paid for it for you and me, and so here, we see that not only is creation longing, but we see that we ourselves are groaning as well. We're grown inwardly as we wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then Paul goes on, to say in verse 26 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So now the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us helps us because we're weak, because we, man, we go, when is it gonna happen, right? He helps us in our weakness. He helps us when things get hard, when things get difficult. And the Spirit helps us because he says, actually the Spirit is groaning and making intercession for us and actually praying for us with groanings that cannot even be uttered. Like there's things that the Spirit is even interceding and praying for us. And then the famous verse in Romans 8, 28, he says, and we know that God is going to work together all of these things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? We use that verse a lot, but here the greater context of it, we see that the Apostle Paul is trying to help us understand this same idea that Jesus was preaching and going around preaching early in his ministry, where Jesus' message was, the time is fulfilled, the time is now, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in this good news, believe in this gospel. This is the tension between the already and the, and the not yet of redemption. The price has already been paid and Jesus is saying, Satan, sin, your time is up, my time is now. 
And it's time for the church, the body of Christ, to rise and trust that Jesus truly has paid it all. Let's keep reading in Mark 1. So Jesus is going around preaching and proclaiming this. And verse 16 says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. So here Jesus calls these people from their occupations and he kind of redefines this idea of their occupation by saying, hey, you guys were fishing for fish, now you're gonna be fishers of men, come and follow me. And I don't know exactly why they immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus. I've studied this a lot and I, there's a lot of ideas and possibilities maybe. The possibility, I've heard uh, a really neat story where um, uh, all of these young Hebrews could have possibly wanted to uh, enter into the priesthood. And part of that would have been uh, something that they would have had to been mentored and discipled by a rabbi. And if you get rejected by a rabbi, then uh, you go and work in your father's trade. And when we first meet the disciples, we see they're working in their father's trade with them. And so perhaps when Jesus called them, they saw this rabbi, this teacher calling them. And it was like this kind of second chance and second opportunity. Maybe that's why they dropped their nets immediately. That's a possibility. I don't know. Some people believe that perhaps it was just a supernatural thing that was something that just transcended even their own understanding and they just knew I, I needed to follow him. Perhaps I've heard others teach and believe that there was relationship prior to and they kind of had an idea of who Jesus was. I don't know why they dropped their nets, but whatever it was, they were compelled in the moment and they left their their boats immediately and they left Zebedee in the boat. I mean, they just left their dad. Their dad's over there like, I can just imagine. They're just, he's standing there holding a net. I'm not done fishing for today, boys, you know. We're going to follow this guy. We're going to follow Jesus, you know. I mean, they just left their nets immediately and left their father. The scripture says in the boat. I mean, they left poor Zeb in the boat, just fishing for himself that day with the servants. And now here they go and they're off on this, this call that they're saying yes to and answering as Jesus was calling them. Let's keep reading verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Stop right there for just a second. I don't know if your brain works like this, but mine does. Um, I look at things really strange sometimes. And when I read stuff in the Bible that we just casually glance over, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And we're gonna read as we go through Mark, there are many occasions where Jesus taught in a lot of synagogues. And I'm like, who let him in? Like, did Jesus just walk in there and go, hey, I'm God, let me preach today, you know? Like, I, I mean, the, how did he get the opportunity to preach? Did he get invited? Um, did, you know, did, did he like sign his name on like a sign-up sheet or something? Like, how did, it, how did it work, you know? Did he ask if he could preach? I, I don't know. So I, I did a lot of research and I, thought, I found this fascinating that in Jesus' day, they had a structure to the way that they would worship on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And it was 
kind of reminiscent of a lot of liturgical things that maybe if you come from a more liturgical background, they would have like a, a liturgy that they would kind of follow. And they would have a rhythm to the way that they would worship on Sabbath in the synagogue. They would have responsive readings. They would have uh, uh, things where they would do prayers. They would have someone stand up and read a portion of the scripture in Hebrew. And then they would have someone stand up and interpret that and speak that because that, that was becoming less and less common for Jewish people to actually speak that language because they were all learning Greek and beginning to speak Greek. So now they, they wanted to kind of preserve that piece of their history. And so they would have something read in Hebrew and, and, and recited. And then they would have kind of a, a more formal reading of different prophecies and things like that. Uh, they would sing some songs. And then someone from the congregation who was a Jew in good standing would give a message. And the message would be like 10, 15 minutes. It was like a shorter thing. Don't worry, we're not going to synagogue worship here. That's not what we're turning into because we're New Testament church. Like when Paul, the apostle preached so long, somebody like fell out the window and died and had to be brought back to life. Like that's the Jesus I believe in. And, but in order to be able to preach, you had to be a Jew in good standing and everybody had to know that you were like someone who was adhering to the law and you had to be 13 years or older. You had to, and that was what they considered you uh, to be a man. And so then they were uh, someone who was, was practicing, that was, had a good reputation. They had these requirements for you to be able to teach. And you could either ask the uh, head elder if you could teach or you could be invited. A lot of times, I found that if there were uh, like someone who's popular, who's kind of like, uh, you know, going and traveling a circuit or something and preaching in different areas, if that person were kind of a popular teacher and well-known teacher, they would be invited to come and speak if they were in your town or whatever the case may be to come to synagogue. And I've just found that very interesting. And it made me wonder, like, did Jesus get asked or did he ask, you know, like, how did it go? Because Jesus would have been respectful. You know that, right? He would have followed whatever that rule was for, that they had put in place. So did he ask, was he asked, whatever the case would be. But when he spoke, the way that the scripture writes in Mark is that he says he taught the scriptures differently than they've ever heard it before. They said he taught as one who had authority. And I find that interesting because I don't really know what that means. Um, what does that mean that Jesus taught it with authority? Something was different. That, that's all I can kind of take from that is that something was different about the way Jesus taught the scripture. He didn't handle the scripture like the scribes. Is it maybe like, you know, how you and I can get real casual sometimes, unfortunately, with like going through a devotion or something and we just read the Bible or read a devotional and we check it out to check off the box. Had they gotten in like a rut and a rhythm of just doing it that way? And then Jesus gets up there and is showing them things in the scripture they haven't seen and, and showing them in a way that it was like, wow, there's conviction in his voice. And I, I don't know, what does that mean that Jesus got up and he taught as authority, as one having authority, not, not as, the scribes and, uh, as, as the scribes. So he gets compared to these guys who probably are normally getting up there, like the scribes, the people who are supposed to know, the people who have been writing this stuff down, the people who've been studying this stuff, man, this is different. I don't know what it is, but it's different and we like it because wow, there's something to it. There's something to it. There's authority there. And so they began to recognize, catch this. You got to catch this first. They began to recognize that when Jesus is preaching this message about the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This is his message. This is what he's teaching. This is what he's showing them in the scripture. And this is what he's going around to different synagogues preaching when he did that. 
the first thing they recognized about Jesus wasn't that he healed people, wasn't that he cast out demons, wasn't that he performed miracles. The first thing they noticed was that he taught with authority. There was something different with what we were used to hearing. There was something different with the way we'd always heard it before. Because we've been good Jews coming to the synagogue hearing the scriptures taught. But this Jesus guy, man, the way he teaches, there's something there that's different. And it was attractive. The word was attractive. And then the miracles and the signs began to follow. But first, the word was attractive. Not the miracles and then they heard him teach him. But they, they wanted to see him heal people. Now, this was before any of those things had taken place. The word, the way he taught the scriptures. Verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So here you see that these evil spirits came to church and cried out in the middle of church. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? I know I'd be saying that if that was my church service, right? A new teaching with authority. The first thing that they go back to wasn't, oh man, look, did you see the demon get cast out at church today? No, the first thing they said, what is this teaching? with authority and then he said he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee I find this interesting because we see that first the authority of Jesus was recognized by the way he taught the scripture and then his authority was on full display by the way that he cast out this unclean spirit you see Jesus authority is greater than that of Satan is greater than that of sin, amen? And we're seeing that Jesus truly has that authority. Let's read verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever and immediately they told him about her and he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. Now check this out. Jesus didn't tell them, hey, I can heal people too. They just assumed Jesus could heal people because they heard him teach and they saw him drive out an unclean spirit. And so they saw this authority was over the power of Satan. And they saw that he had this authority and they knew, which is why they had the confidence when they were at Peter's house to bring his mother-in-law to Jesus to be healed. She had a fever, she wasn't feeling good. They're there at the house and all of a sudden they're like, we gotta tell Jesus about this because they had confidence in who he was. It was his authority because Jesus' authority is greater than the demonic. It's greater than sickness and disease. It's even greater than death, amen? This is the power and authority of Jesus. And let's keep reading about some of his other miracles that he performed. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Wouldn't you imagine? Because this word about Peter's mother-in-law spread quick, right? And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and he would not 
permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This, this really messes with me because here Jesus has all these people brought to him after news spreads about him casting out this demon and healing Peter's mother-in-law. Now all these people are wanting to come and Jesus is performing miracles, right? And then Jesus goes away to pray and the disciples can't find him. Where is he at? And they find Jesus praying and they're like, what are you doing with this praying stuff when you can like be healing people? Like, don't you know how many people are sick? Don't you know how many people are like oppressed and possessed by demons that need deliverance? Don't you know how important this is? We need you to go do this. And Jesus rises from his place of prayer and they're thinking, all right, we're going to go cast out some demons and heal some sick people. He said, let's go preach at another town away from here. That seems kind of cold. What, do you not care, Jesus? Why would he not immediately say, okay, let's go heal them. Okay, let's go deliver them. Because Jesus said, I need to go preach because that's why I came. He says it right here. He said, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. You see, I have another message, and this is so like what we do as humans, man. We, we want Jesus to come and deliver us. We want Jesus to come and heal us and make our lives easier. And we want all of our problems to go away. And a lot of people look at Jesus this way. They look at Jesus the same way that the disciples were looking at Jesus during this time. They were looking at him as like a proverbial Santa Claus or someone who could like make things better, make my wishes come true. And so like somebody's going, man, I got an ingrown toenail. Hey, I heard that Jesus guy heals people. My camel's sick. Let's bring it to Jesus. I'm in debt. I need deliverance from all this debt. Maybe Jesus can fix my money problem. And everyone's wanting to bring their problems to Jesus. And Jesus like, I got to go preach. Huh. I have to preach. And what is the message that he's preaching? He's preaching the message that the kingdom of heaven is here. It's time, so repent and believe. And that's what he's going around preaching and showing them in the scriptures. And he's wanting to get in these synagogues and in these places and help people to see the time is now for all these things to be reconciled, for, for, for redemption is nigh. And he's wanting them to prepare their hearts by repenting and stirring their faith to believe because it's going to take their repentance and their belief for them to be able to trust who he is so that whatever comes in this life that they'll be able to keep trusting him no matter what may happen. But so many people just wanted instant relief from Jesus. And that's often what we look at Jesus as is just our option for instant relief because so many of us are just seeking instant relief. But I have a revelation for you that may mess with your head a little bit if you think about all the miracles Jesus performed, all the sick people Jesus healed. I bet you they got sick again at some point in their lives. Hmm. All the, all the people that Jesus healed, oh man, that's weird. And here's the really hard part for me. They, they all, as far as I know, died. All the people Jesus healed are dead. Huh, okay, that's weird. Lazarus, a man Jesus raised from the dead, died again. How freaky is that? I don't know what happens when you die. Some people talk about like there's like a light or something like that. Go, don't go to the light, right? 
and I don't know what happens because I haven't died, but, but when, when you die, whatever happens, whatever that transition is like of consciousness, Lazarus has already been through it once. Could you imagine the second time around? Like if there's a light and people are like, don't go to the light. I've already done this before. I know what I'm doing. You know, it's just like, <laughs> how weird is that? And the weird thing about Lazarus, as far as we know, is that he's dead, right? I mean, it's not like Lazarus is still alive and like Willard Scott's going to find Lazarus. There's Will, I'm Willard Scott. This is Lazarus. He's 2,058 years old today. Let's celebrate. You know, it's, I brought Willard Scott into the sermon today. Some of you are like, who's Willard Scott, Google? But, <laughs> and, and, and some of you are proud that your pastor knows who Willard Scott is. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I mean, Lazarus is dead. So what was the point of all these miracles if these people are just going to get sick again? What's the point if they're all just going to die? What's the point of raising Lazarus from the dead if he's just going to die again? Because if I'm going to die and we're going through the pains and the trials in this life, what's, what's the point of, of Jesus' miracles? Jesus' miracles. Understand this. Glorify God by proving he was sent by God and that he has authority and power over sin and all the effects of sin. That's the purpose of Jesus' miracles, is that he's showing his authority and who he is, and these things glorify God. Now, I still believe that we serve a miracle-working God, and he can still do, do those things today. Amen? Amen? I still believe that God can heal. I still believe God delivers. I believe that he still sets the oppressed free. I believe he still does all of those things. But sometimes we don't experience those things on our timeline, how and when we want. And that's where we struggle. Because a lot of people are like, well, if God's good, then how come I'm going through this? If God's good and our faith gets shaken, how come this person passed away? If God's good, we prayed so hard, we did all the right things, I thought. We checked all the boxes, we were full of faith, and how come I still didn't get this miracle or whatever the case may be? I, I don't understand all of God's reasoning, but here's what I do know. Jesus told us to pray a certain way. He said to pray, Lord, let your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is what? In heaven. That means that God, whatever's perfect in your eyes, that's what I'm going to trust. But I still know you can intervene and I know you can do things. And when he does it, it's for a reason and it's for his glory. And anything I benefit from it, like if it makes my life a little easier, that's a secondary benefit from the main purpose. Because the main purpose of all of God's miracles are to bring glory to him. Amen? Amen. Not to bring glory to my amount of faith that I had. Not to bring a uh, glory to what I did and how I was able to follow all the rules and get all the blessings from God. No, no, that doesn't bring God glory. It brings me glory. You see, it should all bring glory to God because God takes these crazy impossible situations and makes these incredible ways and provision where it just blows people's minds because it's pointing their hearts to God. And so I just pray and I have to trust God. I know you're rede you've redeemed and you've restored all things and I may not experience it all here because I'm stuck in between the already and the not yet. And sometimes I get to experience things on the other side of this life that I know are already bought and paid for. And that's the faith that I have and trust that I have in him. And I may not experience all those things here. So in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the challenges, in the middle of still living in this world that's groaning for redemption to be fully received and experienced, I have to trust. Trust in the fact that Jesus has ultimate authority. Trust that he's good because the same Jesus who spoke with authority is the same Jesus who overcame death and sin and the effects of sin. And one day, I'm not going to have to worry about any of this mess. 
And I also trust that he's coming back, that he's returning for his church, his bride, amen? And I live with that hope, even though I don't see it. That's kind of what faith is anyways. It's the evidence of those things that aren't seen. It's like, I know that I know. And how do you know? Well, because God said it, and that's good enough for me. Because I know he has all authority. Because I've seen him speak with authority. I've seen him cast out the demons. I've seen him heal the sick. I've seen him move, and I've seen how he's done this so faithfully time and time again. And so I need to keep my heart and my mind focused on eternity. Let's look at verse 40. And a leper came to him and imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once saying to him, see that you show nothing to anyone, uh, say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But when he went out, he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So here we see that Jesus gave this guy explicit instructions after he healed him. He said, don't go tell people about this. Go show yourself to the priest because there's an Old Testament law in the law of Moses that if you are healed from leprosy or if you're cleansed from leprosy, you're supposed to go through this ritualistic cleansing to help reinsert you back into society because you've been living as an outcast. And I want you to go through that properly and I don't want you to tell anybody because I want the priest to actually see that you were a person who was a part of a leper colony and I want them to see that I have authority over all this and I want them to witness this before anyone else. But instead this guy disobeys the voice of Jesus and because of this guy going around blabbing his mouth because he's so excited that he's cleansed from leprosy, which how could you not be? But he disobeys Jesus' stern command. Scripture says he sternly told him not to say anything to anyone, but to go show yourself to the priest. He said he couldn't enter into any of the other towns in that region. So this guy actually prohibited ministry from happening because Jesus wanted to go in those towns and preach, but he couldn't because why? Everybody's wanting him to heal. Everybody's wanting him to heal. And you would think, man, wow, well, Jesus did heal a lot. Yes, he did heal a lot. He still heals. But at the same time, we see why Jesus healed. He healed to show that he has authority over sickness. He healed to show that he is the son of God. He healed to show people that he has the power to forgive sin. Because you remember the story in scripture about the friends who climbed up on the roof because there are so many people pressing into Jesus that they had to tear a hole in the roof and lower their friend down because they wanted their friend who couldn't walk to be able to walk again. And Jesus is in the middle of teaching and all of a sudden the roof starts caving in and next thing you know, everybody kind of steps back out of the way and then here's these ropes coming down. There's these four friends holding up this guy that they love so much and they want Jesus to heal him. And immediately the Pharisees are like super critical of this because they're like, well, we're gonna see what he does. And so they're like questioning him and pressing into him. and. And Jesus knew that they were being critical in their hearts. And so Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And everyone knows the answer to that one. The easier one to say is rise up and walk because we can see it. If I say your sins are forgiven, who knows if that really happened, right? Who knows if your sins are actually forgiven if someone just says it? And so Jesus said, well, so you will know that the son of man has both power to heal and has the power to forgive sins your sins are forgiven, now rise up and walk. 
And they're like, oh my gosh, wow, mind's blown. They're seeing who Jesus is. They're seeing why he came. You see, Jesus is showing them this is the purpose of my miracles. This is the purpose of why I'm showing you. It's not just to make your life better. It's not just to give you a, 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 a pain-free life for a few months or whatever the case may be. It's so I can show you my authority because Jesus' miracles glorify God by proving he was sent by God and that he has power over sin and the effects of sin. We find ourselves at an interesting point in history, in the timeline of this whole thing, because we know the Savior, his name is Jesus. He saved us from our sin, he made us clean. That's the present tense reality that we live in. That's what scripture calls justification by faith. We are justified, that's a legal term. It means legally justified in the eyes of God. Kind of like on paper, a lot of us own a home, but we don't really own it because like the bank really owns it, right? But the bank ain't gonna like come remodel your house. They're not gonna, you're like you wanna change out the carpet, you don't go to the bank and say, hey, you guys need to change out the carpet in your house that I'm living in. They're gonna say, that's your house. You change out the carpet if you wanna change it or if you wanna paint a wall, they're not gonna come paint your house. But you say, it's mine because my name is on it. Legally, I'm responsible for it. Legally, positionally, the house is mine, but I'm still buying it. I'm still owning the home. So I own a home, but I'm owning a home, right? And as I make payments on it, I'm also growing in owning the home. But I never stopped owning the home, but I'm now progressing in owning the home, right? And eventually, I will own the home, right? So I'm owning the home, I own it positionally, I'm owning it by making payments, and one day I'm, I'm gonna own it. When did I stop owning it? At, at no point, I always owned it. It was always mine because legally it's mine, positionally it's mine, I'm growing and owning it, and one day I'll fully own it. It's the same thing kind of how this deal works where we're talking about Jesus Christ has redeemed us. We are redeemed, we're growing in understanding our freedom and redemption in Christ, and one day we're gonna be fully redeemed full. You see, this is how this works. Amen. And, and, and so I am saved. I'm, I'm growing in being saved and I'll eventually be saved because this is how this works. But I never stopped being saved at any point because I haven't fully experienced it. So if you're going through something difficult or challenging, I want to encourage you. I want you to find encouragement in this message because even if things get tough, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The spirit helps us in our infirmities. The Spirit, He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's always there. No matter what you go through, you can be confident that the same Jesus who spoke the word with authority is the same Jesus who is going to bring all things to this full redemption. And you and I are going to experience that if we trust in Christ by faith. That's the hope that we have. That whatever happens in this life is not the end. That we can believe the message that Jesus was preaching, repent, believe in the gospel, for the kingdom of God is here. So here's our big idea for today. Seeking first the kingdom of God requires us to live in light of eternity because Jesus made a way. Seeking first the kingdom of God, which is what we were commanded to do in Matthew 6, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. All this other stuff will be added unto you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. He said, that's what the Gentiles worry about. People that don't know God worry about that stuff. But you guys, you guys know. And so you can trust and know that he's good. You can trust and know that his authority is over all this other stuff. And Jesus even put it this way to his disciples. He said, if God takes care of the birds, 
And if he takes care of the flowers and they don't have to worry about like where their next meal's coming from, he says, why do you have such little faith that he doesn't love you more than them? Aren't you more valuable to God than a flower that's here today and tomorrow's thrown in the fire? He said, of course, God loves you more. So therefore seek first the kingdom of God. But if I'm gonna seek first the kingdom of God, it requires that everything in my life is looked at through the filter and the lens of eternity. That my schedule, when I am sitting down to try to plan my week, plan my year, that I'm seeking first the kingdom of God by prioritizing eternal things first. Because the stuff here on this earth, man, it's here today, gone tomorrow. And Paul says, it's not worth comparing the present suffering to the weight of glory that we're going to experience, amen? It's not even worth comparing. So yeah, maybe things in life get a little easier. Maybe they get a little tougher. I don't know which way it's gonna go for you. We try to make good choices. We try to do things to the best of our ability, but sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes things are challenging. You know that a lot of missionaries that are in foreign countries where the gospel's illegal and people are imprisoned and killed for preaching it, a lot of times those pastors and missionaries who are in prisons, they're not asking and for the church to pray for them that they would be released from prison. But wouldn't you think that would be like your number one, like top thing to like wanna be released? They're praying that God would use them even in that situation to reach the guards and the other inmates for the gospel. I, I, man, do I love Jesus that much? Am I living with an eternal priority that much? Or do I just want to be out of the challenge I'm in and just be comfortable again? And maybe Jesus will help make me comfortable. The apostle Paul, wherever he went, He's just proclaiming the gospel. Good times, bad times. He said, I've learned how to be a base. I've learned how to abound. And I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ has given me purpose. He's helped me to see what's most important. So let's seek God first and trust in the authority of Christ. He's preeminent, as scripture says. That means pre, before. Eminent means that there's nothing greater than him and there will never be anything greater than him. He's, he's above all. His authority is above all, trust in Christ and put your hope and your trust in him because he's good even when we don't feel it, even when we don't see it. He's present and he's faithful. He's always been faithful, amen? So Lord, help us to see this today. Help your word to come alive in our hearts and let us see the faithfulness of God in little ways that maybe we've missed it before because we've been so caught up in looking for relief that we haven't marveled at who you are. I pray you stir our hearts today to trust in Christ like never before. Maybe some people hearing this message trusting in Christ for the very first time. And may we know that you are good and you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.